Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. So much is happening in the COVID-19 space uh, today, but I think it's interesting to get a view from a different part of the world. And joined on the line now by Dr. Ben Rolf, the CEO of the Communicable Disease Threats Initiative, uh, joining us from Austria, from Vienna. Ben, how are you today? Good morning. Morning, Glenn. I'm fine, thanks. Good. It's very early in the morning there, so we appreciate you getting up. And uh, I believe, are you not in the second week of your uh, quarantine there? That's right. Second week. Um, the streets are quiet. Very few cars on the road. But we've had uh, also amazing scenes of uh, people playing musical instruments out of the windows and uh, playing alpine horns on the roofs. So uh, it's not all bad. <laughs> so a, a new a new type of community is forming even in the hardship, isn't it? I think that's right. Yeah, all over Europe. Yeah. Tell us the, again, uh, remind us the current conditions in Vienna. What are you allowed to do or not to do? So pretty much everything is closed in Vienna. All the shops are closed apart from uh, pharmacies and uh, food shops. And you're allowed out uh, once a day to go and get basic necessities. But other than that, everyone is uh, at home and um, doing what they can to stay occupied and entertained. Yeah, and as you're, as you're looking around and listening to all the great music and all of that, uh, um, do the number of cases there seem to be uh, pretty, pretty stable at the moment because of this? Not yet. It, there's a time lag. And, uh, of course, when we see the, the figures coming through, those are people that uh, contracted the illness maybe two weeks ago. So it takes a number of weeks for these measures to have an impact. And all over Europe, we're seeing all the major economies are now in some form of lockdown. Um, but in none of those countries are we yet seeing a really significant impact. It's still going to be a couple of weeks before we see some pressure reduced in the intensive care units, uh, hospitals and yeah. numbers of infections. Yeah, of course, right nearby, you know, Italy is raging uh, at the moment. Uh, France has just announced that they, you know, are, are have have more uh, deaths there. So what, as you look around that region, are there any countries that you feel like are, are really uh, maybe trying to get, starting to get a handle on it, doing, doing the right uh, protocols and things, or is it, just, is it just too early? Are we still too far on, on the way up right now? Yeah, I think it's, it's still pretty diverse. I mean, certainly looking at the papers this morning, you can see uh, every country is struggling to try and assert their leadership on this, and I think the political implications are going to be as important as the epidemiological implications in the long term. But Germany is doing a, a really good job. They're testing half a million people a week, um, limiting gatherings to more than two. And we're seeing a slight, uh, a slightly less mortality in Germany, although that could be that they're slightly earlier on in their epidemic. Contrast that with the UK, where many of the senior leadership have contracted the disease, have not been respecting the social distancing measures. Testing is still only available in hospital settings and the UK are making a virtue today out of testing all NHS staff, which is pretty disgraceful when we have known about this since mid-January. So it, it's a diverse picture, but what they have in common is cases are still growing, unfortunately. Yeah, and we're still seeing uh, uh, news conferences in different places around the world where you have groups of officials standing together. And I, I, from my layman's point of view, that just seems like the most dangerous thing to, to possibly do. Are, are, are you surprised that we still have, you know, in, in light of, of course, the UK now, uh, Boris Johnson and others in his cabinet are, are testing positive, but are you surprised that we're still seeing this lack of social distancing when it comes to some of these press conferences? 
I have to say I'm flabbergasted. I mean, if you Boris Johnson was making a virtue out of uh, shaking hands with COVID patients uh, only two weeks ago, and uh, you know, perhaps it's not surprising that he's now found himself in in home isolation. But if you look at the U.S., you still see um, the president of the United States surrounded by senior officials less than a meter apart. And if you think about the infrastructure that the U.S. puts in place to protect their commander-in-chief, uh, you know, bunkers, Air Force One, all the rest of it is extraordinary that he's exposed in this way. So I agree with you. Yeah, quite interesting. Let's uh, let's move on to a, a subject that is near and dear to many people. And I've, I've been seeing this meme pop up on social media now, and that is the possibility of pets contracting COVID-19 from their owners if, in fact, their owners uh, are positive or, or getting it somewhere else. Is, is your dog or cat going to uh, end up with COVID-19? Well, I wonder if this is a function of the media desperately looking for something, some other angle um, in, in a COVID-saturated world. Um, so we've had two dogs and one cat, uh, Hong Kong and Belgium, uh, reported to be infected. I think the first thing you've got to remember is the tests we use for COVID-19, these PCR tests, they look for fragments of the RNA, the genetic code, and they are highly sensitive. And so the fact that your pet may have COVID-19 in it or on it doesn't mean that they are infected. That's the first thing. Hmm. Um, the second thing is that it is there is some uncertainty around, around whether these they are mammals, whether they are truly infected, but it is very clear they're not in any sense driving the epidemic. So it is unlikely they are infected. It is certainly not likely they are in any case epidemiologically significant. I would not worry about the, about the pet. The uh, second uh, thing is zoology. You know, once we start testing the blood of these animals, we will get a very good sense of whether or not they're being infected. And we're going to hear a lot about serology over the next few weeks. And, and take us through, Ben, just kind of a, give us a, a basic uh, a primer on how this is transmitted. You know, it has to go through kind of a host animal to get to humans. And that's what we think maybe pangolin or some other type of animal like that has been responsible. But but tell us how the chain actually works. It, it's not as it's not as simple as, you know, breathing on the dog or cat or them breathing on you to get this. Tell us a little bit more about that. Remind us. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's actually fascinating when you get into the epidemiology within the bat population. They have a huge number of viruses circling around that population. If you can imagine all the bats sitting on on the roof of a cave together, this is an environment where viruses spread very quickly. Those viruses incubate often in a, in a second animal, like a penguin or a civet cat, and then are passed into the, or amplified, if you like, and then passed into the human population where it's spread through droplets, through coughing, um, and through, through infection on surfaces passed through hands that have not been washed. Um, so the, the, the transmission is relatively straightforward in that sense. Now, of course, if you cough near your, your pet at home, it's very possible that you transfer the virus to them. Uh, and, you know, in veterinary science, there's a long history of coronaviruses in other animals. So this is not a human disease. This is a disease that affects all mammals. Um, that said, I think it's very unlikely we will see this driven by, uh, by, by home pets in any sense. Yeah, one of the cases in, in Hong Kong, notably, it was a 17-year-old dog that had been tested uh, a very low-level positive reading, had then been quarantined for two weeks, um, was was clear after those two weeks, came home and then and then died. And, you know, one would wonder, was it because of the virus or was it because of the, you know, the strain of being in quarantine for two weeks, uh, you know, in Hong Kong? Uh, you know, there, there can be, it seems from all of I've, I've read that there could be no definitive 
definitive link between COVID-19 and this animal passing away. Uh, do you have any more information or insight on that? I don't. I don't. I think uh, the dog sounded like it, it lived a long and happy life, and, uh, and maybe it was uh, getting towards its time. Um, but I think the main thing is to reassure people that nobody needs to be afraid of their pets. Certainly, I wouldn't be taking my pet to a, an elder care facility right now just because of, uh, you know, this can be transmitted on surfaces, including fur. Um, but uh, I wouldn't worry in any epidemiological sense. Sure, that's good. Thank you. Uh, because I, I think that that needs to be put to rest because there is a lot of chatter about that. Uh, let's switch gears just a little bit. Of course, you have done so much work um, with malaria and mosquito-borne diseases. And now, uh, just in the past week or so, we're seeing a, an uptick in dengue. Um, and that is a topic that is, again, being talked about here in Singapore. Of course, you know Singapore well, spending so much time here. What do we know about what's happening uh, with, with dengue right now in Singapore or, in fact, around the region? Well, look, I, uh, to try and take an optimistic spin on it, um, you know, dengue, in a sense, is a, a reason to be cheerful for living in Singapore because although it exercises minds and indeed that the toll on the population is not insignificant, it is far, far less than other countries in a similar climate in the region. You know, the, the government in Singapore have done an extraordinary job and again, like with COVID-19, absolutely lead the world in dengue control. It's also true that every year we see a different profile from dengue, and this year is more severe than last year, but it's by no means the worst year, and this, we do get a variation year to year. So, you know, firstly, I think we need to be, be grateful and congratulate the, the hardworking people in the government who are controlling dengue very effectively. Secondly, remember that it's under our control. You know, dengue, the Aedes aegypti mosquito breeds in open standing water as small as a, as a, as a 10 cent coin. And uh, if we work really hard to wipe out those breeding sites, you know, do the mozzie wipeout, then there will be no more dengue. It's the same with COVID-19. It's in our control. If we manage the social distancing, we manage the contact, we can get on top of it. So I would not be fatalistic. I would be uh, going around to see Gran and making sure that there's no upturned um, breeding sites and uh, and be grateful for the, the, the number of cases that we're seeing because it is far, far less than what we would be seeing, for example, in India or parts of Indonesia. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice. And, you know, the National Environment Agency is saying that as of uh, the end of the 21st of March, we had about 368 dengue cases uh, just in that week, but a total of 4,000, almost 4,400 cases reported so far this year. Uh, so, and, and you know, obviously there are nearly 100 active dengue clusters uh, around Singapore. I guess maybe the challenge is when, when all eyes are focused on one thing like COVID-19, then we don't tend to uh, remember to take some of our, those basic precautions that you mentioned uh, that, we've, that we do all the time anyway uh, in the non-COVID-19 era. Yeah, that's right. And, and the other thing I would say is climate change. I mean, there's some things we can do in our neighborhoods to reduce uh, dengue, and there are other things that require these hard long-term policy solutions. And of course, climate change, despite the COVID coverage, has not gone away. And we see these warmer, wetter climates are perfect breeding grounds for the Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. So you know, dengue is a really hard problem. We're going to see more of it all over the region. And in the long term, there, there are two solutions. One is stronger environmental health capacity across the region. And again, Singapore leads the way. The second is the hard one is what do we do with climate change? How do we prevent these emerging threats that are associated with warmer, wetter climate? Yeah, a lot of uh, lot of things to think about here as we are uh, all of a sudden now very aware of the 
the natural world around us when it comes to uh, uh, to viruses and to uh, all of these other things that, frankly, you know, we might not have paid too much attention to, the layman anyway, in, in past uh, months and years. Well, our, our thanks to Dr. Ben Rolf, the CEO of the Communicable Disease Threats Initiative. Uh, ben, really appreciate your time today. Hope you stay healthy and safe there in Vienna. Pleasure. Thanks, Glenn. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.